The deeper we look into the microscopic world and the deeper we gaze into the telescopic universe, one word inevitably emerges. That word is order. Order, we see it everywhere. Cambridge astronomer, very famous man, also, by the way, a confessed atheist, his name is Fred Hoyle. He saw this remarkable state of order as an uncrossable chasm for Darwin's popular theory of, of natural selection and evolution. Hoyle saw order in the universe that he could not, believe, could not begin to believe could be random. He famously said that the chance of a random universe was like the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a 747. It drove, it, it drove some of his contemporaries a little bit crazy. They thought he had oversimplified, but bottom line is this. Hoyle observing the universe through the telescope said there has to be intelligence behind this. Now, I, I, I will grant you at the very outset, this did not convince Fred Hoyle of the, of the existence of God. He's an atheist. He chose to believe that some other undefined life force out there somewhere ultimately is responsible for all of this, but he could not deny the order, the fingerprint. He could not deny intelligence behind everything that he could see. In these five messages, I appeal to faith and biblical evidence that God stands behind all that is, that he is the architect, the singular, only one architect of all that is, and we see it in so many dimensions. No tornadoes in junkyards, no unnamed aliens, no natural selection. In the course of biblical revelation, we cannot escape the architect who stands behind it all. And he is revealed in so many dimensions in these five messages. We started three weeks ago. We have, first of all, we started just talking about God as the creator of the world. We started in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we just grappled with the fact that he called everything that is out of nothing, he made it. He's brilliant. It's perfect. We also saw then last week that he's not only the designer and the architect behind all of the world, he's also the designer and the architect be behind the human life, the human body, the human mind, the human being. He, he created us. He had a design for us. He shaped us. He knit us together in the poetic language of David. He made us. Today we're going to unpack the third of five dimensions. The third dimension in which we see God the architect. God is the architect of the new creation. He's the architect behind salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will serve as our text. We'll begin in verse 14. We finish in verse 17, and that's really the sting in the 17th 
verse, but starting in 14, Paul writes, he said, for the love of Christ constrains us or controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. We move away now from the origins where we came from to where we're living. We're living in salvation, this life that God has called us into. And while our leaning in the first two messages had us, had us looking back, we were looking back at origins of the universe and origin of the world and origin of the human being and the race, we shift now. And from here on out in this series with two messages remaining, we're going to be looking forward it's like this, God created us, we have creation, that was the first message, second message was mankind, third message is new creation, there are two blanks that I'll fill in over the next two weeks, some of you detail oriented people, this is going to drive you nuts, I'm not going to give them to you, I'm just, I'm just not, you're going to have to come. But we'll fill in the next two blanks and the next two messages. But for today, we're going to be looking in this continuum, this architecture, the, how God created all that is and see his handiwork. The creation suffered terrible loss with the introduction of sin into God's good creative work. God's creative acts were first punctuated by declarations of he created this and he called it what? Good. And then it was good and then it was good and then it was good and finally with the closing of that creative act it was very good. That's a great track record. I, I don't know about you but you know 10 goods and one very good that's, that's pretty good. That's really good. Then the third chapter of Genesis introduces us to the corruptive, disruptive, destructive power of sin. Oh, what sin did to this world, to all of creation. Recent heart-rending images from the Bahamas and the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian transformed really a Caribbean paradise into a dump. As graphic as those images are, they cannot capture the devastation that sin brought on God's creation. While Dorian's effects may be purged over a generation, maybe even in 10 years, most of the signs will be completely erased. Sin, after all of these years from the garden sin still holds such sway in this world. How many of you would say the world's a mess, the world's in trouble, the world's corrupt, sin is still wreaking havoc around the globe? We'll clean up after these hurricanes, but cleaning up after sin, it's a completely different endeavor. 
What happened when sin came into the world? Well, the garden, paradise, was forfeit. Fellowship with God also was dramatically changed. Adam used to walk with God in the cool of the day. He would walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden. That was gone. A nonviolent creation became, as the poet Tennyson said, red in tooth and claw. Violence entered the earth. Sickness and death and pain and suffering became the fixtures, common fixtures in a fallen world. I'll leave it to poets like Milton and Paradise Lost and theologians to reveal the full scope of that loss, but suffice it to say that the image of God stamped upon man was marred. It was marred, defaced, disfigured by sin. God's fingerprint, which should have been so obvious to anyone, his life, his light, extinguished. In 1993, Michael Shara's great book, Killer Angels, was made into the movie Gettysburg. Loved that movie, watched it over and over. I used to have it on disc. We don't do anything on disc anymore, but I loved it. And in that movie, there's a scene where Colonel Joshua Chamberlain from the 20th Maine, Jeff Daniels played the part so well with the big mustache, for those of you who might remember. But the colonel is resting under a tree. It's a peaceful afternoon before the battle, and some of the equipment is going by, but he is set down for a little bit of a rest. And seated near him, up against the tree, is his sergeant, Kilrain. Kilrain's a piece of work. He's an Irish immigrant. He's a, he's a bare-knuckle brawler who generally gets in trouble wherever he goes. He'd been busted down to a private a couple times because of his, uh, his hijinks, but Chamberlain sees him as being such an effective sergeant. He uses him in that role. And here they are, a colonel and a sergeant sitting together summer afternoon under a tree, out of the heat, and Chamberlain is going on and on with Kilrain about the virtues of man, quoting this passage from Hamlet. As he's talking about racism and as he's talking about regardless of the color, when he looked into the eye of another man, he saw the, the Chamberlain says, I, you saw the divine spark. He says, as my mother always used to say, that divine spark. He said, I've never understood all of this because it doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter the color of their skin, I see that divine spark. And he waxes eloquent, he takes, he lifts that passage from Hamlet that I quoted in last week's message. Speaking of man, Hamlet in his speech says, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties and form and movement, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel. And Kilrain, who has seen all too much horror in life, replies, well, if he's an angel, all right then. But he must be a killer angel. Colonel Darlin, you're a lovely man. I see a vast, great difference between us, yet I admire you, lad. You're an idealist, praise be. The truth is, Colonel, there is no divine spark. Never forgot that moment in that movie. There is no divine spark. Why couldn't 
Kilrain see what was so obvious to Chamberlain. You see, in a world without God and where sin abounds, the light is hidden. That's what sin does. It hides the spark. It hides the light. It extinguishes it in the world. So as sin did all to erase the reflected light of God, as it was extinguished in due time, God sent his own son. And listen to how John describes his sending. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. That was week one. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But one more verse, it's verse 9 in John chapter 1. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus, the light of the world. Why is the light come in Christ? Because sin literally extinguished it in the world. Jesus came to make fallen, marred, as good as blind men, new men, who can see and perceive light and walk in the light and live in the light and be carriers of light. Jesus is the architect of salvation. In Christ, Paul says, we are made a new creation, a new creation. Jesus said it another way. He used a metaphor that Nicodemus couldn't get his arms around. He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what? How can a man be born again? He was looking at things purely from the flesh, but how can someone be born again? He had no spiritual insight in that moment. He didn't understand that Jesus was talking about a completely different dimension of life, something beyond the physical realm. You must be born again. There must be this new creation. That's why joining a church isn't going to make the difference for you. That's why obeying a set of rules isn't going to make a difference for you. That's why getting all of the boxes checked on good behavior is not going to do you any good. You see, until the light of Christ has shone upon our hearts and transformed us, there is no life. There is no hope. We are not born again. Something has to happen inside of us inside of us and outside of us how is this accomplished what does it look like a subject so vast as the new birth <laughs> that, that subject that the Bible says in Hebrew angels long to look into these things <laughs> cannot be reduced to 40 minutes on Sunday morning but let me just offer two metaphors that will maybe help us see at least a couple of dimensions of what has been done. First of all, this whole idea that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, it speaks to us stepping into a new environment, a whole new realm. We were alive in the flesh, we were alive in this world, but when we become alive in Jesus Christ, we pass from dead in our sins 
into a spiritual realm, a kingdom. We pass from death to life, from mortality to immortality. We move into a completely different environment. We experience the greatest upgrade the human life can possibly experience. Upgrade. I'm numbered about, uh, among those coming of age in the digital world. My children, I don't think, really appreciate what life was like before the digital world. They grew up with a computer in the house. I wonder how many of you did. They grew up with information immediate, you know, immediately available. But um, I, I stepped into the digital age in the 80s as these things were emerging, home, home computers, that type of thing. I know that my children don't really appreciate how things were then. My grandchildren are completely ignorant to any world that does not have a touch screen. Lost. I've watched it happen with two, two of my grandchildren now. These little girls, they, they, the moment they begin to walk and they're able to approach a television, they walk up to the television, they're less than a year old, what do they do? They're reaching out to touch it. They're reaching out generally to touch absolutely anything and everything, but they reach out to touch it because they have learned if you touch that screen, something will happen. Everybody knows if you've got a problem with your new smartphone, you need a six-year-old. They will, they'll help you. They'll help you. Used to be, you know, the kids would go up, they'd come over to our house, they'd go upstairs and they'd want to turn on the TV and I'd think, oh man, they're going to mess the clickers up. They're going to really mess them up. You know where I go right now if the clicker gets messed up? My nine-year-old grandsons, they'll sort it out. Before long, I hear the, the television blaring upstairs and they've unlocked a whole bunch of channels. I don't know how they do these things. They're at home in a digital world. But the, you know one thing I know that they don't? They don't know how to operate a rotary television. They have no idea what that thing does. They look at that and they, they're, they're in stunned awe. It's like, uh, I'm sure they could figure it out, but I'm not telling them because I just like to have a little bit of knowledge that I keep to myself. Most of us, would, I think that you'd agree with me, the computers have completely changed the world. I was an early adapter and adopter Though I never learned programming or anything like that, I quickly adapted to all of it. My first computer was an Apple IIc. It was this little jewel right here. Uh. Did anyone else have a IIc? A 2, a 2E, or a 2C? No one? I gotta tell you, I feel right now, I feel like the oldest, crustiest dude in this place. I mean, I, I, I feel like this was, this was it. This was it. I remember taking my 2C home, this little jewel. I graduated. See, I graduated at the perfect time in 1977. When I graduated, of course, it would have been better if all of this had started in junior high. But when I graduated, the Holy Trinity was emerging. And the Holy Trinity of computing was the Apple II, the Commodore PET, and the TRS-80 from Tandy Corporation. Ring any bells for anyone? If you... I'm just wondering how many of you have no idea what any of those things mean. That was it. That was it. In 1984, I laid down $1,295. That for me, in Stockton, Missouri, as the pastor there in 1984, was a month's salary. How crazy was my wife? 
She let me. A month's salary. There it is, green monochrome display. No images. No graphical interface. That was on the Mac. That came late in 84. None of those things. But you, couldn't, you could not have convinced me that I was not standing on the cutting edge of the world. 1984. Its microprocessor ran at a stunning speed, 1.043 megahertz. 1.04, stick that in your memory bank, 1.043 megahertz. It had 128 kilobytes, not megabytes or gigabytes, not a terabyte, not petabytes. 128 kilobytes of RAM built in to do the work. It had a built-in floppy disk that worked with these five and a quarter, remember these five and a quarter floppy disks? How many, I'm starting to connect now a little bit. Yeah, I'm looking out there at millennials and they're going, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I love that confused look on your faces. It's wonderful. Um, this was, man, this, is, this was it. And those, those five and a quarter floppies, you, you had to switch out. You'd fire up your computer and you would put in your program floppy and then it'd, it'd grind away for a little bit and then it would put a prompt up on the screen and you could follow that prompt and, and you could do what you were going to do and then when you wanted to save your work, what did you have to do? You had to take out the program disk and you had to put in the data disk to save it on. And when you saved it, then you'd take out the data disk, set it aside, put the program disk, and you could go on, and that's how you did it. And so you, you had to be really kind of smooth. I got to the point where I, was, I didn't even have to look at the disk. It was just in, out, in, out, in, out. Could do it all day long. I'm so proud of myself. When I purchased my Apple, I had no grasp of the idea of upgrade. Who could ever want more computing power than that? I mean, come on. It's amazing. Amazing. Would you agree with me? We live in a different environment today. (laughs) I have a iWatch. It's a three. Don't feel sorry for me. It's the best. I'm, I'm happy. And it just, it just told me, which is, this is disturbing for a pastor. It says, low power, you have 10% power remaining. I still have 20 minutes to preach. How many would pray for me for power? Because I have low power, it says here. Anyways, my, uh, my, my three's okay. Uh, the five is out. I'm dragging my feet. But it really does tempt me. I don't, I don't need it. But I... I want it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That just, anyone who's ever bought a car that you've regretted afterwards, you had a moment where you didn't need it, but you sure wanted it. And, and you got it. I mean, sometimes we're like, you know, we're, we're like that guy who's really, really hungry and he gets dropped off at the Golden Corral. It's like, uh, you know, what do I go to first? What do I go to first? That new, uh, that new watch, that new five, has 32, not kilobytes or megabytes, 32 gig, gigabytes, 32 gigabytes of memory. That's 220 some five and a quarter floppy disks. 
That's just the memory. My Apple IIc stored my data, you know, externally. That's all internal. You never see it. The processor speeds at 2.4 megahertz. 2.4, I'm sorry, gigahertz. Not 1.004 megahertz. 2.4 gigahertz. That's the difference between one mile per hour. That's about one mile per hour. Speedy, ain't I? It's the difference between one mile per hour and more than three times the speed of sound. So you remember in Star Trek where they would go to warp speed and all of a sudden it would be, (laughs) it's this as compared to, it's a different world. It's a different environment. I'm confident that I can say without fear of contradiction that the entire digital world today is otherworldly when you compare it to what was in 1984 and then look at life in 1970 for most of us. When Jesus comes into your broken world, his presence changes the environment the entire operating system, the atmosphere, his presence changes everything in your life. It steps into relationships. It steps into your thought patterns. It steps in. When Jesus steps into your life, he gets into your family. When Jesus steps into your life, he steps into absolutely everything. And the atmosphere, the environment changes completely. You don't think like you once thought. You don't see things as you once saw them. Everything changes. We're housed in the same flesh, but now the Spirit has made us alive, and we are living not within just our little fleshly world, but within the community that we can see. We are literally living within the kingdom of God, which is eternal and which is spiritual. It's a different atmosphere. The Word of God, as we're partaking of the Word of God, it dramatically alters our worldview We see things differently. Our concerns shift. Our operating system's been upgraded. And I don't mean that in a prideful sense to talk about us being superhuman or in any way superior. But we have simply come alive in another world. We've come alive in another world. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The environment changes. We're in this world, but suddenly in Christ, we are not of it because he shifted our citizenship. We're citizens now of another world, and from that other point of citizenship, we see everything differently. Many of you know I was born Canadian, raised Canadian, 15 years old, proud Canadian. My parents told us we were moving to the United States. I struggled with that as a Canadian. Because we were the good guys and you were the bad guys. (laughs) My citizenship being in Canada, I was biased towards Canada. My cousin, Michael Rippey, used to come visit us. And Michael and I, as cousins, we would get into some pretty heavy arguments and at times quite a tussle when we would start arguing about whether it was better to be American or Canadian. You guys always had, you know, you guys always had more people, but we had more land. We, we found ways to argue, and, and, and we fought and bickered back and forth, and I was an absolute, I could sing God Save the, the Queen in English and in French. 
Then my parents moved me here. And I became an American. When I became an American, suddenly I started viewing the world differently. I wasn't here very long before I kind of agreed with my cousin. I wasn't here very long before when I looked at Canada, I found myself thinking the things that he used to think and the things that he used to say, not with the same vehemence, but I, I found myself thinking those same things. What happened? My citizenship was changed. My orientation changed completely. And when we have been translated from the kingdoms of this world and citizens of the earth to being citizens of heaven, when we have entered into this new creation, everything around us changes. Jesus is the architect of this transformation that we call the new birth. He is behind it all. And that's why Paul wrote, by the way, in the text that we read from 2 Corinthians, that's why he wrote and he said, if any man be in Christ, when he said, if any man be in Christ, he prefaced it by saying, from now on, therefore, we regard no one any longer according to the flesh. We don't look at people the same way anymore because now we know that Christ died to redeem them. When I look at people who are as lost as they can possibly be, I see one for whom Christ died. Something has to take place in our hearts when we hold on to our prejudices and we no longer or, or we are unable to see people as we should as simply folks for whom Christ died. You say, but he's a homosexual. He's one for whom Christ died. You say, that guy, he's a criminal. He's one for whom Christ, she's the kind of woman that you wouldn't want your daughters to, she's one for whom Christ died. Died. We don't view the world any longer through the eyes simply of flesh. We don't even view mortal life in the same way. When we look out there, we see those for whom Christ died. That's why Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new, he's a new creature. So the environment, and I'm trying to just say everything, the environment is everything around us, everything changes. But let me give you a different metaphor because I want to speak to, to a, a different, and there are so many different metaphors to use. I struggled to come up, I, I struggled to, to settle on just two. There's an aspect of recovery that we need to consider because you see, when Christ comes into our lives, the idea that God had for you before sin corrupted the world, the idea that he had for you is fully restored. Sin has marred us and sin has broken us and sin has ruined us and then Christ steps into the midst of it and he says, the, what I was thinking about you before I even formed you in my mother's womb, now, now that you've accepted me as Savior and Lord, I'm going to restore you to that which I saw. Not that your mama saw, your daddy saw, or that you saw. What I saw when I first thought of you. You see, he knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. Think about recovery. You've probably seen their trucks. Perhaps you've been a client along the way. The, com the, the company's called After Disaster. Well-named. See their trucks around town? 
When they go by, I always think about, you know, somebody's misery. Somebody, those, those guys are going to and correct somebody's upside down world after disaster. On their website, they have a gallery and you can look at the situations that they step into after a disaster and what they do with it. I love those before and after pictures. I'm a sucker for those. I, I get into those galleries, I can't get out of them. I'm going, look at that, can you imagine? You look at that one and you got the, you know, the insulations hanging from the ceiling and the floors are buckled up and the walls are black and, and you know, there's, it looks like a body over in the corner. I mean, it's just a mess. And in the midst of all of that, you, you wonder, what, what in the world would you do? And then the, the picture that's right beside it is that place and it's pristine. Absolute, it looks, it looks perfect. There's a miracle that's taken place. What's, what's the miracle? The miracle of recovery. Oh, they do it all. Pulled this off their advertising. They do water, they do fire, they do smoke, they do mold. They don't do sin. For that, you need a specialist. Let me talk to you about after disaster. Let me talk to you about the one after the fall. Let me talk to the one. Uh, 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 let me talk to you about the one who steps into your life when everything's hanging down from the ceiling and stuff is shorting out and there's bodies laying everywhere and there's blood and there's carnage and the walls are black with mold. Let me talk to you about the, the one who steps into your life and the roof is just blown off and everything's in tatters and you can't even find you can't even find the foundation stones. Let me tell you about the one who steps in to the midst of all of that and says, "I'm not only going to put the pieces back together, I'm going to give you what this thing." should have been in the first place that's what Jesus does that's what Jesus does see after disaster doesn't just paint over the stains they don't just go in and suck out the water they don't stop until they have removed all that corrupts and everything damaged is restored But what does it take to make the soul right? What does it take to make the soul right? A few Hail Marys, if you're from that tradition, you had to do penance, you had to pray a certain number of prayers, recite over and over again. If you weren't from a Catholic tradition, maybe it was church attendance. Because a lot of us were raised with this idea that if we just keep going to church, that's kind of a badge for our goodness. Sooner or later it'll rub off or something, but we'll, we'll just keep going to, to church and we attend over and over again. It's, it's almost like, you know, church attendance for evangelicals is like rosary beads for Catholics. And just say, oh, I was there every Sunday. Do you remember in Sunday school? Remember back in the day when every church had Sunday school and Sunday school was bigger than morning worship? Remember those? Anybody remember those days? There, there was a day when that was the way it worked. And what we would give out every year is we would give out people little pens for perfect attendance. Is there anyone who can remember these things with me? Because I've got people out there who are going, what? Yeah, you would get perfect attendance. And every week you would wear it because you were proud of it. Either you'd have your one year, your two year, your three year. You had to be there. I think you had to be there. You had to be there, of course, every week. It had to be perfect attendance. I don't know if they had grace for one missed one miss Sunday. I remember Brother Dugan, when I was growing up in Eastern Canada, Brother Dugan, he had one, he had a, he, they hung to about here, they swung like this. I thought, if he keeps being faithful, he's gonna trip over that at 90 and kill himself. 
But he'd walk in and that thing would be just, that thing would just be swinging and everybody would go, wow. I'm sure he was a very godly man, but that's, that's what it was all about. For some people, it's not church habit, it's, it's willpower. They come to a church, and they say, yeah, I'm a mess, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm gonna clean myself up, I'm gonna fix this. And so they say, what? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna screw up the willpower here. I'm gonna really ratchet that up. I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm gonna bring my will to bear on my mess. And what they end up doing is cosmetic. You see, you can join up, you can sign up, you can pay up, you can step up, but you can't wash up because you see your stain of your sin cannot be washed away except what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only his blood, only his work, only his grace, only his effort. When it meets my surrender, can wash away my sin. But we try, don't we? We just haven't learned that sin is not washed away with religion. It's only washed by the blood. Can we clean up our own mess? Perhaps we've determined just to muck out our own disaster and use our own tools and take our own time and make ourselves over. Maybe we just want that solitary experience of trying to put it all back together ourselves and we fail, we fail miserably. To jump to another metaphor, it's like we run our own rehab. We govern ourselves. We say, I'll get straightened out. I'll get this fixed. I can do it myself. I can do it. I can do it by my will. There are no 12-step programs that take us to salvation. 12-step programs are wonderful. Not shooting at them. I'm only saying they cannot accomplish our salvation. You cannot attend enough meetings to clean up the mess of sin in your life. Otherwise, we would have already been there as many times as we've met together. I'm in my 35th year here at Calvary. That's a lot of meetings. By now, we should all be squeaky clean. And I got a bone to pick with some of you. Because some of you are messing up. I'm your pastor. I know these things. People call me about you. People tattle. Nothing's hidden. So I've got to tell you, if meetings would do it, we'd have it knocked because, man, we've been meeting together. Some of you are meeting. We used to be three a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You wouldn't miss. That's over 150 meetings a year. You did way better than AA. But it can't wash away your sin. It can't even touch it. 
See, after the disaster of the garden, after sin and death made entry into creation, after history's sordid and sorry record of man's failure to win the war against sin, Paul writes, and it's almost a relief when you read it. You turn the page over and you hit the second chapter of Ephesians, and Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind that were by nature, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Whoa, that's harsh. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were dead men walking. And you see, before time began, God in his infinite knowledge, his foreknowledge, created the ways and the means for salvation, your salvation. The architect was at work on your salvation before you ever were. All glory be to Jesus. It is the greatest triumph, this triumph of his, of architecture and engineering, to engineer the new life, the new birth, the new creation. It is is the greatest triumph the world will ever know. The Bible says he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So our salvation, which is found in Christ and his cross, even before the foundation of the world, all of these things are established by the architect to bring us to this Sunday morning where we sit in awe and wonder that God thought of us even then. He saw us before he made us and he loved us. He loved even the very idea of us. He loved us and made a way for us. I have to confess, I like Chip and Joanna (laughs) on Fixer Upper. I don't watch a lot of it. So I'm not addicted, like some of you are. (laughs) But I like watching what they do when they take uh, a house. Fixer up, it's it's Chip and Joanna Gaines, it's a television program that revolves around them rehabilitating houses and dramatically, dramatically, fantastically blow your mind what they're able to do. Great, great, great work. I've seen them step into places that were just short of horrible. Have you ever stepped into a house and thought, what were they thinking? I'm not talking about the decor, I'm talking about the layout. Stepped into a house and it's kind of like, is this a maze? Is, am I supposed to, you know, do I get a prize if I find the kitchen? Have have you ever walked into that place and it's like nothing makes sense? You've heard of the bridge to nowhere. Some people have houses that the halls seem to go to nowhere. 
You're just hoping you can find your way, your way out of the mess. And, and you, you just look at the d design and wonder what in the world were they thinking? Almost every time Chip and Joanna step into a house, you know, I'm, 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 I'm coaching them. I'm on the, I've watched them long enough now. I'm coaching. I'm sitting on the sidelines and I'm already beginning to see some things here. Even before they bring them up, I'm usually there. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And who thought about putting the fireplace there? I got the whole list. Then I've watched Chip and Joanna go to work, step into those places that were just short of horrible. And by the end of the show, I want to live in that house. Anyone else? Sherry and I are in the same house now for 23, 20, I don't know how many years. We've been, we've been there almost forever. It's a, it's, it's a wonder since I've been watching that show that we haven't moved. Because I'm thinking, we could do that. We could do that. Wouldn't that be great? I'd like to live in that house. And Chip and Joanna's show, uh, it's, it's about a little bit of drama and it's a, a bit of art and a lot of talent and it's design and it's architecture. But it only goes so far, you see, because, and this is where the illustrate, this is where the illustration breaks down. It doesn't matter how good the work that Chip and, Diana, uh, and Joanna might do. It, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line is this. It can't, it can't match resurrection. No matter what you do in a house, no matter how you fix it, no matter how you bring it back, we're not talking about death to life. That's a completely different dimension. Would you agree with me? To make a dead man live. We're talking about a completely different thing. You see, the greatest miracle you will ever see has already happened, and it's happened inside of you, Christian. If you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been raised with Christ Jesus. You're waiting around to see some great miracle. You're just saying, oh, Lord, just once in my life, I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to walk on water. Just once in my life, I'd, I'd like this or that. We sometimes have a long list. If I could just see that, Lord, then I'd be satisfied. And we fail to recognize that the greatest miracle you could ever see and ever experience has already happened in you as Christ has raised you from the dead and made you alive in Christ Jesus. How did he do it? How could he do it? Why would he do it? The only answer that provides any satisfaction at all is love. Unreasonable, inexplicable love. I think we know it only in part in the human realm. I love my wife. I love her dearly, I love her deeply. I love my kids. I could have used my wife or my kids for the illustration today of, uh, of love, but I realized that there's a different dimension of love, and I, I think I've got a dispensation from my wife and from my, the, my, my girls. I, I hope they won't be terribly upset, but there's a, whole other, there's a whole other dimension of love that some of you know, some of you will one day, and that's the love a grandparent feels. Grandparents, look at me right now. Is loving your grandkids different than any kind of love you've ever experienced? Not a lot of nods out there. Would somebody just say amen, amen. or just croak one out? Amen. <laughs> it's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of love. Not denigrating, it's just, it's just different. And 
I point that out because I'm, I, ultimately I want to reach that point where you, you understand that, that God's love is a different kind of, we talk about our love and his love and uh, his love for us is it's of a different dimension in the same way as my love for my wife, my love for my kids, my love for my grandchildren. There's a little bit of difference. There's a difference there in all of that. Those twin boys, nine years ago, those twin boys came into our lives, David and Keegan. And from the moment I held them in my arms, I loved them. I loved them. I loved them so much it hurt. Does that make that makes perfect sense to a grandparent? So much. I, it was it was a physical, spiritual, neurological reaction. That those moment when I held those grandbabies in my arms, I loved them so much. I love them so. There are pictures of me when the when the boys were, were born that I'm just I'm kind of ashamed of today because I look like a grinning idiot. I just look like I'm just I, I look like I look stupid in in several of them. I really do. I don't care. I was out of my mind. I, absolutely out of my mind. I wanted to hold them all the time. Didn't want to change them, but I wanted to hold them all the time. <laughs> Anything that they would do or if they glanced in my area or if they burped or anything that they did with me, I, any, it was just, it was the most wonderful thing I had ever seen. And I was, abs I still am over the moon. Those grandchildren followed by the four daughters. Now it's David Keegan and it, or granddaughters. It's David Keegan, Brooklyn, Selah, Shiloh, and Elisha. And they are absolutely magnificent. And when I see them, sometimes I just stare I just, you know, I, sometimes I feel just kind of goofy. And I never, I never want to be in their presence, that I don't want to hug them and I don't want to kiss them and I don't want to hold them because I, I, I love them so much it hurts. But God's love is greater. A million times Greater still, if I took the candle power of all of the love that I have for my wife, all of the love that I have for my children, all of the love that I have for anyone in my life, all of the love that I have for my grandchildren, if I take all of that love and I compare it with the love of God, I am not there, I am not, I'm not in the same zip code, I am not even close to the way he loves me and you. And he died for me. And he died for you. He died for the whole package of you. You say, oh, I'm such a mess. He's mad at me most of the time. No, he's not. He loves you. He loves you and he wants to help you. He loves you. You see, his blood has washed you and me. That's what happens when we come through confession of our sins and we ask him to wash our sins away. His blood cleanses us of every stain. We struggle with that a little bit because we see blood as a staining agent. We something that we struggle to wash out and that's because we're always thinking of what blood does outside of the body. But what does blood do inside the body? 
The blood that's coursing through your veins right now, medical people are already there, but right now, as the blood is pumping through your body, it's taking, it's, it's making a stop as it's making its way through the lungs and in the lungs, it's offloading oxygen, which is life-giving. And what's it doing? It's picking up all of the carbon dioxide and all impurities. It's picking up impurities and the blood is delivering them to where they can be expelled and they no longer, you no longer carry them. That's an ongoing cleansing process by the blood. And right now the blood is rushing through your kidneys and in the kidney process, all of those corruptions, all of the things that could kill you, all of that is being cleansed by the blood even now and in your liver and your spleen. Oh, that's taking place right now inside of your body. But every last bit of it is the work of the blood. You see, we think about the cleansing of the blood and we see what it does outside the body. We need to stop and consider what the blood is doing inside the body and we will understand that Jesus' blood is washing and cleansing our sin. That's what he does. That's what he does. The author of Hebrews asked the question, how shall we escape? Speaking of judgment, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? A simple gospel appeal this morning. Have your sins been washed away? You say, well, you say they have. You say Jesus did all of that. <laughs> you see, all, all of this is engaged in our cleansing and forgiveness. It all comes in a moment of surrender where we give ourselves to him. Until then, the work has been done, but it has no effect in you. Have you experienced the cleansing of your sin by laying down your life before Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow you. You may have sat through a hundred of my messages, but you have never grappled with the issue of your sin. You may have walked in this place for the very first time today and may have heard for the first time that Jesus died to cleanse you of sin. You can know him today. The Bible says if we confess our sins and we are all sinners, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't matter what you've done, he'll meet you right now. He'll meet you right here. He'll take your sin. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. But I'm telling you, you'll be stepping into a whole new environment. And the uncovering of what God thought when he first thought of you. That's magnificent. Would you bow your heads with me? Is there someone here today who would say, Pastor, I feel my need of God. I have not, I haven't dealt with sin issues in my life, but I want, I want to be free today. I want to be clean today. If that's you, would you slip up a hand? Say, Pastor, include me in your prayer. I want to be free. I'm going to wait just for a moment. 
felt so compelled today to just make it a simple response. God bless you. Is there someone else? I feel my need. God bless you. I feel my need of God. I need to be free of the burden of sin. Is there someone else? God bless you. Is there somebody else? Stand with me.